Let me take you back to 2013. I'm 18 years old. It's my second semester of college, and I'm walking through the snowy tundra that is Central Michigan's campus on my way to an open mic. My creative writing professor had invited me to it, and I'm going partially for the extra credit, but mostly because I don't have shit else to do on a Wednesday night. I get inside, and I don't know anybody there except my creative writing professor. Like, this is how cool I am. The only person I know in this whole room is a 45-year-old white guy with kids. So I get up to the, the sign-up sheet, and I'm like, I don't recognize not one name on this list. And I'm thinking, maybe this is a mistake. Maybe I should just go back to my dorm, play some PlayStation, call it a night. And just as I'm about to do that, this kid taps me on the shoulder. It's a pale white kid in a gray hoodie. And I don't know if you've met any creative writing majors before, but that description can fit a lot of them. <laughs> but I noticed there's something different about this pale kid in this gray hoodie. He was talking to someone he had never met before, and he asked me, hey, are you going to sign up? So I sign up, and I'm looking around to see where I'm going to sit, and he's still standing next to me, and he notices that I don't have anywhere to sit, and he says, well, hey, uh, you can sit with us poets over there if you want. Are you a poet? And when he asked me that, I had never considered myself a poet before. I had mostly written raps for me and my friends when I was in middle school and high school, but I never considered myself a poet. But because I don't have anyone else to sit with, I look at him and say, yeah, I'm a poet. And as I'm sitting with them, for the first time at this school, I have people around who are just into the same stuff as me. For the first time at Central, I felt like I really belonged somewhere. I really felt like I had a community of people. And so for the rest of my time at Central, anytime someone asked me what I was or what I do, I would always say I'm a poet. What up, what up? I'm Bryce Huffman. It's Same Same Different, the show all about identity and how we survive otherness every day. That story was from college. That was a time when I didn't have a lot of people around me who made me feel accepted and I could just be myself. And while it's obviously important that everybody find that, it's especially important for us, people coming from marginalized communities, to have that kind of support around us. Today, we've got Sultan Sharif. He's a filmmaker and activist from Metro Detroit. He's known for his films Bilal, Stand, and The Flow. And Regina Boone, she's a photojournalist who's worked for the Detroit Free Press and the Richmond Free Press. They both found their people in interesting ways. Thank you both for being here. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having us. All right. So I am going to put 10 seconds on the clock, and I'd like you to both just rattle off all the ways you identify. Uh, Regina, you can start once I get the clock up. And okay. cool. So whenever you're ready. All the ways I identify. Okay. Um, Jean and Ray's daughter, a sister, an aunt, um, a photojournalist, a furry mom to my dog, Jake, uh, black, black a quarter in Japanese, um, Spellman's sister. Uh, let's see. What else? How well, see. the 10 seconds is up already, <laughs> and okay. you just kept naming things, and I was like, well, let me just see how far this goes. <laughs> All right. And uh, how about you, Sultan? Uh, Muslim activist, artist, uh, son, student, uh, mentor, mentee, uh, hmm, Detroiter, 
Uh, I'm trying to think. Uh, cis male, able-bodied, uh, mentally disabled. Hmm, I don't know. Is that 10 seconds? I mean, the 10 <laughs> seconds was up a while ago, oh, but okay. she kept going. So I was like, I'm going to let you keep going. It's hard to think <laughs> 10 seconds while you're talking. <laughs> so the show is all about identity, and we all come from communities that kind of shape who we are. Regina, could you tell me a little bit about the communities that you came from and the ones you were raised in? Sure. Um, I was born in Richmond, Virginia, so that first seven years of my life was Southern, uh, small community. And then from there, moved to Baltimore. In Baltimore, I was in a predominantly white, uh, all-girls prep school. And my house was in a predominantly white neighborhood in the center of Baltimore, Maryland, and near Johns Hopkins University. But in this house was where my parents raised us, to, my brother and me, to be very everything black. Um, we had a picture of Frederick Douglass on the wall. We had a picture of Harriet Tubman. We had Gordon Parks phot- photography on the wall some Japanese artwork. So that's kind of the world I grew up in. It's kind of a mix of a lot of stuff. And Sultan, how about you? What Describe the communities you kind of like came up in and grew up in. Uh, yeah, so my parents converted to, to Islam in, the, um, in like the 70s. So I was raised in the sort of second generation black Muslim community of uh, the Detroit area. And then everyone converted to traditional Sunni Islam. So I have eight siblings, so there's nine of us. And so they were essentially hell-bent on getting us on a pathway that would lead to college, um, even though we lived in Inkster, which is lower-income, you know, all-black area uh, just west of Detroit. So their strategy was to, like, split us up and send us to different schools. So I went—I was the new kid in school almost every year till 10th grade. So some of us would be going to Muslim school. Some of us would go to Romulus, which at the time was predominantly white, like white working class. Like So for me, I would try to change the way I talk. You know, I was like code switching almost like literally. Yep. Like switch. Okay, I don't use this word here, you know. And then when you're, and, but then also I never fit in anywhere because I was, you know, too Muslim for the black kids who were mostly Christian, um, too poor for the white kids, too too um, too, mu- <laughs> too black for the Muslim kids, and so it was just this constant like doing whatever I could to try to like blend in and. And sort of like be be nothing, and so I actually didn't talk very much. Um, but then I kind of came into my own, like in high school, and sort of stopped trying to be something else, and started this journey of just trying to like be myself and figure out what that was. When you got to high school, you kind of stopped trying so hard to blend in. What changed when you got to high school? Um, I honestly think I just like gave I gave up. <laughs> It was just too hard, so some type of, like, early life crisis. Um, and I was just like, "There's, I'm not going to win this. Like, this isn't going to happen. I think also, um, so my brother at the time and, and, and several family members had been dealing with incarceration. And, the, and so mm. I just hit this point of, like, as I was trying to, like, wear the cool clothes and talk, you know, like everyone, and I was just like, where does this get us? Wh- everything that I could see, it wasn't anywhere that I wanted to be. So um, so then I just started questioning, like, is that my future? And, like, I'm working so hard to, like, be black enough. It's like, where is this going to get me? And, uh, yeah, and then I was like, you know what? I, I give up. And then I started 11th grade, like, as this sort of new person. Wow. Hmm. It's crazy that it happened for you in high school. I, For me, I really stopped trying so hard when I got to college because I just saw people that had never met a black person before and had never met someone from Detroit before and they had all these assumptions. So I was like, well, I don't want to 
give you the idea that you're looking for for what like someone like me should be. So I'm just going to be me and that'll be it. <laughs> yeah. I kind of went the opposite route of you guys. Um, I went from, you know, all white girls school to my parents saying you must go to an HBCU. Uh, my dad and my mom said, you must apply to either Spelman or Howard, in addition to the other schools that you're applying to. And I was kind of like, oh, I, I don't want to go there. I wanted to go to another school. And at that time, I was thinking it was more like self-segregating myself. And I was like, this is not the real world. I should be going to a school where there's everybody. But my parents were like, nope, this is where tuition's going. And of course, my first acceptance letter came from Spelman. And I went there initially kind of kicking and screaming. and uh, But, of course, at the end, my parents were right. That was the best place for me to be at Spelman College with all black women from all different backgrounds. Why do you think that was the best place for you? So I think, it, I mean, it was the first time that I was in a community of people like me. I mean, at Spelman, it was all shades of me, all all different women from different even different countries, different socioeconomic backgrounds. It was just beautiful and it was empowering. And I was like, wow, this is what I've been missing. This is amazing. And so first semester was definitely hard. It was uh, adapting to a whole different world that I had not been used to. I mean, I was used to being with all blonde hair and blue-eyed girls. And now I looked across (laughs) a sea of like just every color of blackness, you know, and it just was empowering and I don't it, – it just – something clicked for me mm-hmm. and I found my, my good friends and just began to evolve as a person, as a, as a woman, as a black woman, just as a citizen of the world. You're listening to Same Same Different. We'll be right back. So now that you're both growing up a little bit more, <laughs> what communities do you feel like you belong in now? Uh, well, I mean, I definitely still belong in uh, black community. Um, but now I'm in this different point where I've been doing a lot of research um, about a different part of my family that I never really knew about. Yeah. So you found out you have a Japanese granddad. I know you never got to meet him, but how did you start, you know, researching about him? How did you find out about him? So what triggered me into this was actually a sad moment. Um, It was when my father, Raymond Boone, uh, was uh, dying of pancreatic cancer about five years ago. And um, he was he was a journalist. He he started a newspaper here in Richmond, Virginia, called the Richmond Free Press. And my dad worked to the end and he identified 100 percent as a black man. I mean, he fought for everything black, but for all people. But he never identified as half Japanese. But in the last weeks of his life, he started talking, I mean, literally from his deathbed while he's in home hospice, he started saying, I wish I had met my dad. I wish I knew my dad more. And he said, Regina, um, I need you to do some research on your grandfather, the grandfather you never knew, the father I never knew. And I need you to find out what happened to him exactly on December 7th, 1941, and why he was arrested. I mean, we know why he was arrested, but, like, what happened? Like, why didn't he come back to Suffolk, Virginia, where he was arrested at his restaurant, the Horseshoe Cafe, when I was just three and his brother was two? And I was like, whoa. I mean, this was a major 
baton being passed to me. This was a subject my father never, ever talked about. He never talked about being half this or half that. He just talked about being a black man in this world and that he was, you know, fighting every day. And we didn't talk about being mixed or, you know, half this or a quarter of that. That was never in our vocabulary. I, I found out that I had a Japanese grandfather probably about the age of 13, but that was a quick conversation in a car ride from Baltimore to D.C. And then basically it was shut down. Oh, and wow. then I would try to insert uh, questions here and there throughout my life. Um, the most I got was while I was at Spelman and I decided to apply for the JET program to go teach English in Japan. And I did ask my dad a little bit more, like, you know, maybe I have relatives in Japan, but he knew nothing. And it was very uncomfortable for him. And I just didn't push it at that time. So that's why this conversation when he's dying is just like, holy crap, what the heck? Like, And I looked at my mom was right there. So I had a witness. Um and I was like, oh, my God, did you hear, Dad? And she was like, yeah. I mean, it was really heavy. So that's kind of when it all started. Um, no, mm-hmm. so, um, you got me out. I have uh, all these questions bubbling up. Yeah, yeah. They would, that would have <laughs> yeah. made them, a, that made them an interracial, <laughs> interracial couple in the South in, what, the 20s? Which I feel like would have yeah. been, like, illegal. So right. And then even just, to, uh, you said 1941, so I assume you mean Japanese internment camps um, in terms of being arrested. Mm-hmm. So I just wondered, did you ever make any connections to, like, that narrative of of this either interracial couple in the South or just the civil rights from from a love relationship standpoint. So yeah, I mean, okay, Sorry, so my so dad. Hot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah woo, that's heavy. I mean, but um, these are all. The, can you imagine? This is all the stuff that's totally been going through my head the past five years. Like, it's so heavy. It makes me sad. It makes me tired. It makes me angry. It makes me all of these things. And yes, to all of that that you just asked, I have thought about that. Of course, I didn't have my dad here to ask that question to and to get a definitive answer through research, piecing together what it was like in Suffolk, Virginia during that time. I mean, this is the time of Jim Crow. Uh, My dad is, yes, now he's a a mixed child. He's half Japanese and half black. His father is gone, arrested. Mm -hmm. And and then, you yes, you've got the layer of uh, marriage. Of course, my grandparents were not married. I've tried to research. um, I mean, there's the loving case that wasn't until the 60s, of course, when uh, interracial marriages became legal, but I don't know, it doesn't exactly include, you know, Asian Americans and, and blacks. Um, it, it, but they definitely were not married. And so that's another layer of my identity that I've been thinking about. Like, imagine if my name was not Regina Boone. Boone comes from my grandmother, Letha Boone, okay? And so had my grandparents been married, my last name would be Regina Miyazaki, so this would have changed my whole narrative, wow. right? That mm-hmm. would have changed who my father was. I always wonder, would he have started a newspaper in Richmond, Virginia called the Richmond Free Press that is mostly focused towards, um, you know, advocating for justice for the black community? Would he have dedicated his entire life as a crusade journalist, you know, working for the Afro-American newspaper? Like, I think about my life so much about how had it has been affected by race, racism, xenophobia, um, and now, you know, immigration issues. Because I identify now, like when I heard those cries of those little kids in Mississippi, those, you know, screaming and crying when their parents are arrested, I thought of my three-year-old father and his two-year-old brother in Suffolk, Virginia. Yeah. 
what Regina's narrative left me thinking about. That quotation, I am my ancestors' wildest dreams, you know? Like, is there some Miyazaki tribe Mm. and you're one of their descendants and they're hoping that you're doing well in the world or that you're carrying (laughs) on some torch that their tribal whatever you know what I mean Mm. and so I think about that a lot even in the Detroit scene like we're the byproducts of this you know great migration up north from all these black Mm -hmm. families who (laughs) were sharecroppers you know after slavery and a lot of them didn't get their 40 acres and a mule you know and so then they came up to work for Ford and uh, and you know many (laughs) were able to make lives for themselves but for me my work as an artist and work in Detroit is I think really trying to sort of reconcile and heal through arts Um, in the arts community, I think you have a lot of people in Detroit sort of struggling to tell stories, um, as they're struggling to figure out who we are, um, especially Mm. in this moment that Detroit is. And I, and I think that's a really difficult thing when you're coming from this very sort of industrial past. Like when I was doing ice carving, so part of my rebellion in 10th grade, I would do anything (laughs) that would piss black people off. So I listened to Metallica and, and Pearl Jam. Actually, I started with Limp yes. Biscuit to to start with, oh, wow. and just a place where you it were was. At it the was time. so. It, it was. It was like I'm listening to white music. <laughs> like, I'm a blast Limp Biscuit. I thought it was so cool. Um, and then I, yeah, and, uh, but then uh, I joined the ice sculpting team. Ice, ice, baby. <laughs> yeah, that was. We used to blast that. <laughs> um, but but oh, anyway, the, to to round it out, a lot of people in the black community would be like, "Why are you?" why are you carving this thing? It's going to melt, you know? And, and for me, like, <laughs> like, like part of doing it and like trying to develop this identity as an artist was like, I'm carving it because it matters in the, for the three hours that it's up or, you know, then it's going to melt and it'll be nothing. And so there's some ephemeral value or there's some value to the ephemeral that I feel like the black community never had the luxury of valuing when it comes to the arts. And so I think a big challenge for Detroiters is shifting from this very industrial, this very, you know, working class, like every penny needs to matter to like justifying Mm -hmm. both internally and externally, um, like why you're committing so much for something that's ephemeral. And I think that's a big challenge to this Mm -hmm. day for a lot of Detroit artists. I agree with you. And isn't there a quote, um, Maya Angelou said it was something like, um, Bringing the gifts, if I can remember this right, bringing the gifts that my ancestors gave, I am the dream and the hope of the slave. I rise, I rise, I rise. And do you remember that quote? Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah. You know, yeah. You're like, if I remember it, and then you got it perfect. <laughs> I know, Bob. I just know it, I guess, but I, I thought maybe I might get nervous. <laughs> I forget it. But it just, I don't know, when you were talking earlier, that, that quote came to mind and in talking about... Um, you know, connecting with your ancestors. And I think like you, I didn't really think a lot about my ancestors growing up. It hasn't been until the past, like, seriously, the past like three years and um, really digging deep and trying to find out who this man, Suruju Miyazaki, was, the father of my father, my grandfather, and, you know, connecting to him and finding out he was a Buddhist and then actually finding relatives in Japan and going to his grave. Um, This is something that, I'm doing now and it's and it's giving me power and I feel I just I don't know I I feel that connection what does community give you Hmm. like for me if I had to sum Hmm. it up in two sentences I would say community gives me a place where I can just be Bryce and a place where I can let the rest of the world experience just moments of who I am wow (laughs) (laughs) I mean I I feel like for me it, it community 
pushes me to uh, to think more deeply about like who I am and what my values are. You know, it's almost like a mirror, a mirror for you um, to see yourself and the people around you and to be to have sort of things pushed that can come out either through sort of peace and and uh, and comfort or through conflict. You know, your answer yeah. wasn't as short as mine, but I'm totally going to steal that. <laughs> it does sound good. <laughs> I'm about to say, like, it sounds like something you read on a website. I don't even remember what I said now. I'll have to listen to this to, like, write it down. <laughs> but when you t- talk about community, like, I feel like I'm still in various communities. And I feel like I'm still straddling, but... I'm taking bits and pieces from all that I learn, and that's what's maybe that there's like a one big mirror, like you said, like a reflection that I'm looking in, but in different rooms, so to speak. And I'm trying to bring it all together. And so maybe that's why I'm so like, like I'm driven, but then I'm also uh, sometimes tired, and I'm 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 struggling sometimes, mm-hmm. even though I know who I am. But the more you know, and, the, and with all this digging of this other part of me. I mean, it's complex. I mean, I'm definitely a part of a strong, rich black community in Richmond, but then I'm, I'm a part of this global community. That... I, I mean, I, I, I can identify with that. I think for me, I think I imagine I'm a part of this like future community and, mm-hmm. and all of bits of every community I navigate are a part of that. You know, um, mm. and so because yes. it sounds like you're like me, like one of those sort of unicorn people who can yeah. can pass through. <laughs> yeah, like I remember I, I was at uh, I was yeah. at a film festival with some friends from MIT, and it was at Sundance, and I go there every year. So uh, one of my friends from MIT, who's originally from uh, Chile, is hanging out with me, and I'm like, just we're I'm just dragging her through Muslim spaces and activist spaces and artist spaces and you know lawyery spaces, Hollywood spaces, right. and then she was like, how do you keep track of all of this stuff like by the end of the day because we have been in like seven different worlds and so for me (laughs) i think like it's like they uh, in this future community that i have they all are one thing and it's sort of like for now i have to put up with the extra work to like get full by going through all of them even in a day or in a week or something i mean that's my life too i feel like i go like 10 minutes here then two hours there and you know or like you said like just navigating the photojournalism side of me the spellman side of me the the foodie quirky the you know japanese american (laughs) so many worlds that i navigate and i just do it effortlessly right you just do it Mm -hmm. it just happens (laughs) Mm -hmm. this is the world we live in right yeah Regina's working on a book about discovering her Japanese roots. You can follow her on Twitter and Instagram at Regina H. Boone. And Sultan, he's always working on a million different projects. So to keep up with him, you can find him on Twitter at Sultan Reflects. Let's keep this conversation going. You can join the same, same, different podcast group on Facebook to talk with me and other fans of the show. And you can also find me on Twitter at Bryce Huffman 313. Until next time, peace. I created Same Same Different along with Sarah Hewlett and Jen Guerra. Other members of the team are Bob Scon, Zoe Clark, Jody Westrick, Emma Winnowicki, and Dustin Dwyer. My buddy Jack Phillipson made the theme music, and my guy Sean Mack designed the logo, so big thanks to both of them. You can check out the artwork we've got going for each episode. This week's is by Michigan Radio's very own Paulette Parker. 
shout out to everyone at Stella's Lounge in Grand Rapids for letting us record our story slams there. And we're on all the platforms, Spotify, Google, Apple. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, just leave a review for us, please. It'll help other people find the show and we could all use a little bit of love. 